Victory Baptist Church. Thank you, Pastor, for the opportunity to uh, be back. And we, uh, been, I have been looking forward to this time and for the service tomorrow night. Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning to the 95th Psalm, Psalm 95. <clears throat> if you see somebody by you that doesn't have a Bible, uh, if you would loan them yours and look on with someone else, they'd be very good because we're going to consider this 95th Psalm this morning, and I'm not going to read the Psalm and then uh, go back through it. We're just going to work our way through this 95th Psalm. And <clears throat> I'm reminded uh, back at our home church, Southwest Baptist Church in Oklahoma City, uh, last year the theme that our pastor emphasized uh, throughout the year was found in the 133rd, uh, or in the 33rd Psalm, where it says, let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of God. Let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of God. And so the theme had to do with standing, obviously standing in awe of God. And I do think that it's possible for the uh, for even believers, those that know Jesus, some for a, a long time, it is possible to go along in our life and lose the sense of awe that we ought to have toward God. And uh, a couple of times, I wouldn't expect anybody to remember this, but a couple of times ago, I think it was, that I preached out of the 113th Psalm, and I talked about how that he is high and lofty, is high above the nations, his glory is above the heavens. We also used Isaiah 57, where he inhabits eternity, and that his name is holy, and that he is high and dwells in the high and holy place. We talked about the lofty nature of God. And uh, certainly, the more that I read the Bible and try to understand the Word of God and, and have a sincere walk with God, the more I am in awe of God. Now, <clears throat> in um, our time, there are people that say, well, the world is in a bad way. Nobody in their right mind would argue against that. Our culture is going the wrong direction. There's chaos and confusion in the world. I'm not trying to sound gloom and doom, but just facing the reality, things are in a mess right now. And so shouldn't we be addressing those things and I came to the conclusion, and this has to do with the, the big picture of the Word of God, that in the most perilous of times, we can still do nothing greater than focus on God. Now, we need God. Our country needs God. You need God. I need God. We need to see God according to the revelation that He's made of Himself, not what your opinion is or my opinion is about God and not what somebody else has said about God, and people that often say, well, here's how I think about God. Every time I hear that, I get ready to hear something totally weird <laughs> when it's compared to the revelation that God has made of himself. And there is not a chance in the world that a human being of any kind, most intelligent person ever, can put their brain in gear and come up with a right understanding of God. The only way we're going to know God is accept and embrace the revelation that he has made of himself. So we want to focus on that today, focusing upon God. In the 95th Psalm, it begins like many other psalms. 
it points out uh, what is a theme of many psalms, or at least admonished in how many of the psalms, a great many, where it begins, and he said, Oh, come, verse 1, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. Now, if you're a guest here at Victory Baptist Church, and maybe you're not, maybe you're the kind of guest that's not really used to this kind of service or this kind of a church, then you've seen that and heard that fulfilled, what we just read, fulfilled in this service again this morning. That there is a joyful noise that is made to God. And it says, come and let us sing. And let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. And so basically what he is saying is what so many of the psalms do. Uh, is saying that God is worthy of our praise. Uh, praise by song. And praise by re in, in rejoicing. Rejoicing in what? In the rock of our salvation. Now, if you're a believer and you want a good, interesting Bible study sometime, just run the references and study it out about all the ramifications of the fact that he is our rock. And there are too many for me to start naming today, but the fact that he is the rock of our salvation. Somebody said, I'm not sure what that means, but it sounds like it's secure. Yeah, well, that's what it's supposed to say to us and much, much more. And so the Lord ought to be praised. There's no question about it. The singing that we do, why do we go to church and why do we sing? Because that's what we ought to do. That's what the Word admonishes us to do. And why does the song leader get up and say, everybody sing now and let's quit looking like it's gloom and doom and there's nothing to rejoice in when he says very clearly, clearly let us make a joyful noise unto the Lord. I preach in a lot of places. I'm in Baptist churches all the time. Uh, most every Sunday morning and somewhere preaching. <laughs> and uh, honestly, it's really disturbing to my soul how many people I'm sure have the joy of the Lord, but they believe that there's some merit in making sure nobody knows. Because yeah. <laughs> if you just look at the countenance of the majority of Baptist churches on a Sunday morning, nothing about the countenance says, I have joy. So he says, well, I have joy. Well, what are you mad about it for? I mean, come on. We have reason to rejoice in the Lord, and we're to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. It says it twice in those two verses. Now look in verse number three, because the question could be asked, why is that so important? In other words, why does God deserve such attention and such praise and such adoration? Why is that? And in verse number three, he begins like this, for the Lord is a great God. There's reason right there. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. So God is above all. I quoted out of Psalm 113, he is high above the nations. And here it says that he is a great king and a great God above all gods. Now, somebody might look at that and say, you mean there are other gods? Well, you might notice there that this is a little g God. And uh, almost all the time when you read in your Bible and you come to the little g God, we're not talking about a deity. 
Well, weren't, what, I mean, wasn't, weren't there other deities? I mean, there were people that worshipped Baal and uh, other pagans that worshipped Ashtoreth and, and the uh, Philistines worshipped uh, Dagon and on and on. They all had their gods. Well, yes, but those gods existed only in their imaginations. There was no reality to it. They were idol gods. Uh, in fact, the next psalm, Psalm 96, said that all the gods of the heathen are idols. An idol doesn't necessarily require a physical something to behold or something to worship, like something carved out or graven out of stone. It doesn't require that. It can be that, but it doesn't require that. Because actually the definition of the word idol has to do with emptiness and nothingness. So that there are people that bow down, uh, bow down as we read in the Word of God, and worship Baal, and, and prayed to Baal that the fire might fall, but it never happened. Why? Because, uh, can I talk Okie to you? That's Oklahoma. Uh, the reason Baal never answered is Baal ain't. He doesn't exist. There's no reality to it. And there are those that talk about various religions of the world and the Hindu religion. They have multi-million uh, gods, but they only exist in their imagination. They do not exist in reality. There is one deity, and that is God. And the scripture says that he is uh, a great God, and he a great king above all gods. Well, these gods, generally in the Bible, are the rulers, the pharaohs, the Nebuchadnezzars, those that you would recognize as you go through the Old Testament and even in the New, those that are in places of authority. Now, it's granted that some of them thought that they should be acknowledged as deity, uh, but they obviously, it, it turns out, they die, they pass away, they're buried, their bones go back to the dust of the earth, and so they don't even, there's no other deity. But they were rulers and had authority and had responsibility and power that way. But the Bible says that God is a great God above all gods. He's high above the nations, uh, His glory is above the heavens, and there is none like unto him. There's no ruler. There's no king. There's no monarch. No, there's no one like God. No, and that's what he is saying here. That's why he is worthy of such praise and worship. And it says, as we go on in verse number three, that it, uh, verse number four, rather, that a part of his greatness has to do with the matter of creation. What we know as creation, what God created. Look what he says here. Again, read verse 3 and then we'll work into it. For the Lord is a great God. That's why we sing and have a joyful noise made to him with song and with psalms. For the Lord is a great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. Now what does that mean? In his hand, in God's hand, are the deep places of the earth. Well, what do we know about the deep places of the earth? Well, we know that there are magnificent and wonderful things to know about the deep places of the earth that have a whole lot to do with our existence and our able ability to live in this world, the deep places of the earth. I have a daughter and son-in-law that live in Pampa, Texas, and it's in the panhandle of Texas. I think the average rainfall there in a year is something around two to three inches. I mean, it, it, it's, it's terrible 
compared to so much of the, of the country. And so in West Texas, where there is a minimal amount of rainfall, you could go from the Panhandle and all the way down the west side of Texas, and if you drove that, it's flat. I mean, it is so flat out there. People come to Oklahoma and say, I don't like Oklahoma, it's flat. And I tell them, you haven't even seen flat. If you go to West Texas, you can watch your dog run away for three days. That's what I've been told. <laughs> and, and I mean, it is flat, flat out there. And people say there's nothing to look at. But actually, being a farm boy growing up, there's a lot to look at. And it's amazing the crops that grow out there and the green that is often there in that dry and arid place. Now, I thought you said it didn't have much rainfall. It doesn't, but they do a great deal of irrigation. And their crops depend upon the irrigation. And that comes from, a, uh, from an aquifer that is, uh, uh, goes down from the north part of the Texas panhandle even into uh, southeast, Colo uh, yeah, southeast Colorado and even into western Kansas and all the way up to Nebraska. Some say even up to South Dakota. And there's an aquifer there that has water in it that is just astounding, amazing. And all down that place, they continue to irrigate and to grow crops and to thrive and <laughs> prosper that way. And I, I look at that and I think about the mysteries of what is under the earth, the water. I was preaching, my wife and I were in um, Idaho earlier this year and in the summer. And while we were in Twin Falls, Idaho, there's a massive... Uh, uh, there's a, a, a massive, uh, what do you call it? It's, um, uh, the, the, it's not a canyon, but a, a pit or a, 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 there's a word for it. Come on, somebody help me out. Huh? Yeah, well, it's bigger than that. So it's massive. And Twin Falls, Idaho, the Snake River runs through there. And they have these massive falls there that are just absolutely magnificent and beautiful. And so the Snake River then runs down this canyon or gorge, and goes, yeah, gorge, that's the word I think I was looking for. Anyway, this gorge, and, and the Snake River runs down there, and uh, uh, the pastor there said, could I take time to show you something I think you'd find interesting, Brother Sam? Sure, yeah, so he took my wife and I about, oh, from Jerome, Idaho, and Twin Falls, about 15, 20 miles to the west, and he pulls off, and we go to this place, and all you can see is just flat land. And, I mean, mountains and hills in the distance, but right there, flat land, you think, I wonder what we're going to see. Well, that gorge runs all the way down there, and the Snake River is there. And so we came to this place where you look way down. I don't know how far, but, I mean, it's way down there to the river. And he said, now I want you to look right down here. And he said, if you look past that clump of trees coming out of the side of the gorge there, and he said, if you look past that and look down just a little bit, can you see water coming out there? And I looked and I looked because it was a good distance down here. And I said, yeah, I see it. Now, he said, I want you to look this way. And I looked that way. And there's water coming out and gushing out of the side of the gorge to the left as well. And he said, uh, now, this was first discovered uh, during the time of the Civil War. And this water is coming out of, a, out of an aquifer that is obviously underground. That's what it is. And it comes from underground. And it's been running out like that for all these years and no telling how long before. And it just keeps coming. And out of that massive aquifer that is there, there are also farmers that are taking the water out of the ground and they are farming and irrigating their crops and such as that. And it just goes on and on. 
Now that's in Idaho and in West Texas. You go around the world and you see the same thing. Well, what are you trying to say? In his hand are the deep places of the earth. This isn't some strange thing that happened as a result of the great explosion theory or whatever the situation might be. It, the fact of the matter is God did this because he intended for this earth to be replenished with humanity and for people to exist here. And all the alarm that is taking place today totally disregards the fact that God is still control of his creation. And that what we experience from underground goes with the fact that in his hand are the deep places of the earth. That's where coal comes from. That's where natural gas comes from. That's where oil, petroleum products come from. From the deep places of the earth. Well, no, that happened 17 billion years ago, give or take 5 billion years. And that happened, and the result of this and this, and that's how that all happened, and such as that. No, actually, this is the hand of God. And right now, we could be paying a dollar and a half for gas if they just let us take what God has. I, I, I don't have time to get into that kind of stuff. But it is there for our purposes. And our usage, I'm not saying we have no responsibility in ecology. We absolutely do. But those resources are there. What, what he is really saying is here, in his hands are the deep places of the earth. In other words, God has supplied himself all the resources that we need to exist here. And some of them come from under the earth. Yeah, amazing. It's God who does that. His hand, or in the deep place there. The strength of the hills are his also. Now, in Oklahoma, you don't, you'd have to drive quite a ways to see mountains. And even in this part of the country, what do you do? You have to go to North Georgia or somewhere before you start seeing mountains and such as that. But then there are people, of course, in the Rocky Mountains and those kind of places that think we don't even know what a mountain is. If it's not the Rocky Mountains or the, uh, if it's not the Cascade Mountains, or some of the magnificent peaks and heights that they see. But I, I, I have come to love the state of Montana. I don't know if you've been across Montana or been around there much, but I preached quite a bit in the state and had occasion to drive across through many parts of Montana. And you've got these big, massive mountains or rolling hills that are there. And then you have the magnificent peaks and the, and the Glacier National Park uh, there, I, I mean, it's just magnificent, it's beautiful. Did you ever look at mountains and say, that's weak? Well, you don't, do you? Because if anything, you think of magnificence, you think of strength, and it said, uh, the strength of the hills is his also. So uh, the deep places of the earth are in his hand, and he is the one that formed the mountains as we see them and know them. No, it's not by accident. It's by the hand and the work of our creator God. And then he says, and the sea is his. If you look at verse 5, the sea is his and he made it. Amen. The massive bodies of water in this world. I remember my wife and I was going to go to South Korea and the Philippines. And about a week before we went, they were talking about uh, some rough air and storms that were over uh, the Pacific in different places, and a lady was killed because the airplane fell a certain amount. You know, the rough air and the, everything opened, and she was not buckled in, broke her neck, and killed her. And, and they thought, 
And, and so a week later, my wife and I are getting on a plane to basically take that route and to go, go across the Pacific. And I remember looking down and seeing the water. And you can't see any land. And we're sitting in a 747. And I'm looking out, and the wings are going like this as we began to hit some bumps and some rough air. And I thought, oh, no. And I'm not much of a seatbelt nut, but, man, I made sure I was buckled in. And I thought, what am I doing here? Look at that. I can't even swim across a farm pond, let alone uh, survive there. Look, I mean, look down there. This is just nothing but water. It is massive. It is incredible. God said, I made that. And the mysteries of the sea are still being studied. And the resources of the sea are still astounding and, and, and magnificent and marvelous and something to behold. 70% of the surface of the earth are these bodies of water. 30% is land. Which, by the way, verse 5 says, the dry land is his as well. Because he formed it. He made it. So what is he saying? Well, what he is saying is God is worthy of our praise because God is of might to create what we know as creation and all of this is his. Whether it's the deep places of the earth, whether it's the strength of the mountains, whether it's the bodies of water, or whether it is the dry land upon which we depend for much of our livelihood. And so we look at all of that and God says, I did it. It's all mine. And that's why he is worthy of our praise. Now, the psalmist is so moved. There may be some people in here who say, oh, I have doubts about all of this creation stuff. There may be others that are here that say, no, I believe it to the T, I do. But I've heard it so many times. I mean, who doesn't know that God is the creator? I know, but the psalmist understood it too. But there's something about it and being refreshed and reminded by the Holy Ghost that made him in awe of it. Because his next words are telling, verse 6, where he says, in light of what he has said, where he says, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. <laughs> this is the inspired word of God right here. Oh, come. Oh, oh, come. Can you feel the sense of passion that is there? He didn't say come. He said Oh, come. You know the difference between saying to somebody, listen to me. Oh, listen to me, please. You, you understand that? And the psalmist is simply saying, do you understand what I have just written? Do you understand the words that God's just inspired? Do you understand the greatness of God, even in these matters of the creation and the things that we see and physically we benefit from in result of his creation of the earth? Do you understand that? If you understand that, he says, then, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. All across our country and I suppose other parts of the world this morning, there are those that will stand in a pulpit or on a platform before congregations and say, okay, friends, let's get together. Everybody look at the screen and the band's getting ready to rock out. Let's all stand and worship God today. Let's stand and worship God. So they stand to worship God. 
Well, that isn't what he said to do. We worship God however we desire to worship God. Yeah, well, there are people that, just for example, <coughs> baptize however they feel like baptizing. Some sprinkle some water on them. Some pour some water on them. Some splash water on them. Some actually put them in the water and bury them and bring them out again. Which do you think is right? Well, really, it depends on what the word means. I said, actually, it depends on what the word means. Since the word means immerse, submerge, then you could hardly splice somebody in the face or pour water on a baby's head and call it baptism. You can, but it's not. Is everybody with me here? So do words matter? Of course they matter. You know, I worship God the way I want to worship God. Well, if it's not somewhere in line with what the word means, then are you sure you should call it worship? Because the definition of the word is even here in our text. Oh, come, let us worship the Lord and let us kneel, uh, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. If, you, if anybody in here decides, I'm going to study this out for myself, well, please do. And here's what you'll find, that the definition of the word has to do with coming low before another to acknowledge the worth of another. Now, we're talking about God here. And so to worship God means to come low before God. It means to prostrate oneself even on the ground. It means to bow down and to kneel. That's the definition of the word. That, that's what it means. Now, hold on just a second. Well, that, that's what Muslims do. Well, yeah, and that's kind of a shame. They know about, more about the definition of the word than most Baptists do. That's a shame. It's just that they're not worshiping because to worship God, you must worship him in spirit and in truth. God, nor the truth about God and his son, Jesus Christ. And so that can't be called worship. They may in their, in their form. But biblical worship requires that we understand God and that in understanding God, we humble ourselves before him, we come low, and we kneel, and we bow, and sometimes perhaps even prostrate oneself on the floor and worship God, acknowledging who he is and what he has revealed about himself and that he is worthy of such adoration. You might remember when John on the Isle of Patmos bowed to, before the angel that gave him a revelation, the angel said, oh, no, 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 we don't do that. We only worship God. We only worship God. Uh, I, I am a servant like you. We don't worship man. We worship God. But do we worship God? Churches across America, you can look in their uh, church bulletins or whatever you call them, have the schedule. And you have the Sunday morning worship service, and you have the Sunday night worship service. Some even call Sunday, uh, Wednesday night the worship service, uh, midweek worship, and such as that. Now, it only is that if the assembled do that. 
uh, Southwest Baptist Church where I pastored for 20 years. It has a, um, uh, you know, the ground floor, and it's got a horseshoe balcony, a rectangular building. It's got a horseshoe balcony. I've often thought what would be fun would be to uh, uh, put plexiglass up, you know, the kind where you can see from where they are down on the floor in the auditorium, but the people on the auditorium floor can't see them, don't even know they're there. And bring in, let's say, a couple of hundred or so people and that don't know the Lord, don't know God, don't go to church, and we uh, entice them by some kind of a motivation to come and observe the service at the church. And uh, we're going to put in their hand the definition of the word worship, the biblical definition of the word worship. We're going to put it in the hand. And we're going to say, we want you to observe the worship service. And then let's say that a typical Baptist church service is conducted. And so uh, they stand up and sing. The people that are there, they're not familiar with that kind of life or that kind of uh, uh, assembling and such as that. So they don't really know. They're just working. They've got their bulletin there, and they've got the definition of worship. And then they see the choir singing, the others sing, and the music may be very good. And, and then after a while, uh, a bunch of guys are carrying these little things around. And, well, it turns out they're taking up offering. And then after that, the preacher gets up and goes on and on and on and on and on in the minds of some. And so they watch that. And then all of a sudden, at the end of his tirade, uh, that's what they probably would think of a fundamental Baptist preacher, at the end of his tirade, all these people stood up and they sang again and then they left. And so we asked all those people that had the definition, did you see worship in our service today? They look at the definition, they think about what they saw. Well, yeah, uh, after while those people were singing that last song, there was uh, a guy that came over there and knelt down, and there was somebody over here. I think there was four people, maybe that knelt. It was. I. It looked like if this is the definition of worship, then just by physical observation, it looked like you had about four people worship. Well, somebody said, "No, don't, don't pull that on me. I can sit right here, or I can stand there during the invitation and worship God as much as anybody." Really. Well, if you're that gullible, you could have got baptized just any old way. Because it really doesn't matter what words mean. Or does it? I'm not trying to pour cold water on anything. I'm just saying we ought to face reality. What is worship? Because he ought, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And so he deserves that kind of worship. And I'm not saying it has to be done ritually. I mean, we used to have a, uh, a worship time at Southwest Baptist where we just took a time, very soft music and sometimes no music, and just ask people to bow. And the vast majority of our congregation would and spend some time in worship. But then I don't want it to be like passing the offering plate. Here we go again. It's time to do it. I want it to be because we are compelled to worship God and because the Holy Ghost is working in us. And, and our response to what God has made known of his presence that day puts us on our face. Yeah. 
There are times, there, there, I guarantee there's somebody sitting here right now saying there are times I feel like getting down and praying, but I don't know, I just don't. Nobody else is. What's that got to do with anything? Nothing. You ought to be worshiped. How do you worship? Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. And I understand there are times, I just read in Nehemiah this week, there are times when they bowed their head and worshiped, and whether they stood and bowed that way, I'm not sure. I'm not 100% sure. I just know that it takes humbling and bowing and kneeling and prostrating oneself. All of that is included. In biblical worship. So no we don't stand and sing. To worship God. We humble ourselves before him. That's the appeal of the psalmist. You understand the greatness of our God. He said. Why uh, our God is so great. That in his hand are the deep places of the earth. Our creator God is so great. That the strength of the hills is his. He, He is so great. That he made the waters. The sea is his. And he owns it. And the dry land is his as well. Everything is created by God. He is worthy of our worship. Oh, come, he says. Let us bow. But then he goes on to remind us of something that was sung to us very beautifully in, in spatials this morning. Look, look what else he says in verse number 7 where he has said, Kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. And we are the sheep of his pasture, a people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. (laughs) Oh, the beauty of the analogies that we have in the word of God. God is great. God is high. Who are we? Well, God, we are the people of his pasture. He's the one whereby we have sustenance and whereby we live. The apostle Paul stood to a bunch of intellectuals at Mars Hill and said, In him we live and move and have our being. That's what he said. That's who God is. And he said, oh, come, let us worship and, and bow down, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture. Are you saved today? Yeah. If you're saved and somebody says, I don't know about that song that says, my name uh, is written in the record and written in the book. All you got to do is read Revelation 20. That answers that question just very, very plainly and very, very clearly. And if your name is written in the book and you know that you're saved do, do we recall, do we understand why we're saved? Do we understand why we're not going to hell? Do we understand why we are not carrying the guilt and burden of sin day by day by day buried under it? Do you understand that why we have all of this is the good grace of God? He, he is our God. He's our God. Why do those Muslims bow like that? Because Muhammad and Islam is their God. What's with all those Hindus bound with all those goofy-looking idols? That's their God. And they're not even. Not even what? Not even nothing. And he is everything. Christ is all. And he is all in all. And we ought to worship him. We ought not to measure when and how we worship by what anybody else does or doesn't do. When we recognize his presence and we're reminded of his greatness and we recall his mercy 
and his grace and his compassion and his long-suffering and his kindness and his goodness. I'm just saying. And something in us says he deserves more than just, well, you know, he deserves to be worshipped. He does. He does. For he is our God. We're the people of his pasture. We're the sheep of his hand. Sheep of his hand? <laughs> yeah, that's another one you ought to consider as you go through the Bible. Consider all the references to the hand of God. We're the sheep of his hand. By his hand, he protects us. Somebody say amen and I'll keep going. By his hand, he protects us. By his hand, he leads us. By his hand, he chastens us. By his hand, he feeds us. We're the, what is he saying? We're dependent upon him. We are the sheep of his hand. That's what he says. And then the psalm takes this, what might appear to be the strangest twist. If you look in the middle of verse 7 or towards the end of verse 7, where all of a sudden it says, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness when your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my work. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, it is a people that do err in their heart and they have not known my ways. And all of a sudden, where all the attention, excuse me, is upon the greatness of God, the power of God, the might of God, and the fact that God is the provider of everything for our existence, and he calls us to worship him, and from the call to worship and explaining what it is, he says, today, if you will hear his voice, Harden not your heart. And if you're not careful, you might look at that and say, where did that come from? How'd that fit in what he was doing? I think what he's doing is just really calling attention to and putting his finger on why God's people don't worship him. That must be it. What is it? Well, today, if you will hear his voice, don't you be hard-hearted like his people have been known to be hard-hearted. Like in the day of provocation, when your father's generations before you tempted me, proved me, and when they did not believe me, mm, and they did this out of the hardness of their heart, and the more they disbelieved the wonderful works of God. He said, they saw my works. They saw my works. They knew what I did. Oh, what did he do? What did he do? He brought them out of Egypt. Don't make me go through the ten plagues, the supernatural hand of God working against the Egyptians and for the Israelites. And don't forget the parting of the waters of the Red Sea that saved them from Pharaoh's army. 
Now don't forget that Moses cut down a tree at the command of God and bitter water became sweet water so that the whole nation could drink. Right. Now don't forget that God dropped manna out of heaven six days a week for 40 years so they could survive in that miserable wilderness. Don't forget that God brought water out of a rock and flooded the dry places of the desert so that two to three million people would have sufficient water in a place where there was no water but for God. Don't forget that. And don't forget how the enemies came up behind them to destroy the weak and the frail, and God dealt with them. Don't forget that the Mount Sinai shook with lightning and thunder, and the voice of God came and brought them the Ten Commandments. The first time the Ten Commandments were stated, they came from the voice of God from heaven to his people who agreed to keep them. And then did not. God says, do you see what they were? Do you see what they were? Somebody say, well, this is Old Testament stuff. I'm not sure it has any relevance. Go read 1 Corinthians 10. That will settle that for you. That was a New Testament church Paul was writing to. He brings up the same issue for the same reasons. And he says, don't be that. In other words, when we know we've heard from God, I mean, we know when we hear from God. Well, I know when I hear from God. You know when you hear from God. I don't think the pastor and I are the only ones. I'll give you another chance. We know when we hear from God. Doesn't have to be anything spooky and no weird stuff going on. It's just the way the Spirit of God works in our hearts to convict us, to get our attention. Let me know. This isn't a preacher just letting off steam. This is my word. We know when that happens. And he said, when you know you've heard the voice of God, don't respond to the voice of God like they responded in the wilderness. They provoked God. They tempted God. They said, God, if you want us to worship you as God, then you've got to meet our standards and our criteria. Oh, oh, no, no, no. Oh, no. That wasn't the agreement at the Mount Sinai. Here's what God said. They agreed to do it. Now they're trying to get out of it. He said, don't be like that. Don't let your heart get hard. As in the day of temptation. Don't, don't, don't be like them. Don't sit in a service Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and know I should humble myself before God. I should deal with that sin. I should embrace the truth that was given and bow down and actually worship God and adore him for his mercy, grace, kindness, long-suffering, patience, gentleness, goodness in my life. I should get on my face and worship him. It's not enough just to sing the song. It's not enough to shake hands with everybody, get in the car and go home. That's not enough. I need to worship God. And by the way, if he's worthy of our worship on Sunday, he is worthy of our worship on Monday. Just follow through. 
When I read the Bible right now, I'm working on memorizing Revelation chapter 4. When I read the Bible that around that throne that is described there, where the 24 elders seat, this is what is in the future, that around that throne there are created beings going around that throne saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when they, bowed, uh, when they cry and declare the holiness of God, the four and twenty elders on those seats around the throne fall down. It didn't say they get down. It says they fall down and worship him that sitteth on the throne and says uh, to they say to him that he is worthy because he has created all things for his own pleasure. And they bow down and worship him. If he was worthy back then when the psalmist wrote, and he is worthy in the future after the rapture and when we are gathered together in heaven, brethren, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is worthy of our worship now. Why don't more people worship? Uh, I'll just let the Bible interpret this for us. Harden not your heart. Must have something to do with hard heart. I don't care what you preach. I'm not going to go down and I'm not going to go down and worship. Then don't. But you just said something about yourself. Neither would I preach a sermon hoping everybody comes down to the altar. I, I don't. I don't. I don't want to create that. You don't want to create that kind of thing. But when we know that God has met with us and the response that we have matters to God, that we heard it is one thing, how we respond is the next thing. And how we respond before God, when we know we've heard his voice, we, we know, okay, he's rung our bell. We know he's got our attention. How am I going to respond? I'm going to respond by getting up, saying amen to the last prayer, getting in my car, go home and eat, take a nap, and I'm coming back to church tonight. That's how I respond. Well, nothing wrong with any of that. But that's not worship. And the appeal is, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. God, listen to this, please. God put up with them for 40 years. 40 years. And then, verse 11, swear in his wrath. Because of their sick response to his goodness. That they should not enter into my rest. Would you call the wilderness journey a time of rest? <laughs> no. You know why it wasn't a time of rest? Hardness of heart. Well then they went into the promised land. Don't have time to preach at all. But they entered into the time of the judges. Joshua, Moses died, Joshua took him in. And then Joshua and the judges. 400-year period there. Did they know rest? <laughs> no. Judges will just about do you in right. reading the book of Judges carefully. And that describes their 400 years there that there was not rest. Right. Then they went into the times of the kings. And in 400 years under the times of the kings before the captivity... Did they know rest? Oh, well, in the days of Solomon, there may have been 25, 30 years of his reign that things were really looking good. But then Solomon loved strange women. 
and led the whole nation astray. And gave obeisance to the idol gods of his 1,000 wives. Rest? I'm about done. Would you listen to this? God said, I swear my wrath that they shall not know my rest. That's repeated four times in the book of Hebrews. That God's people who respond to him with hardness of heart will not know rest. Is that sad or is that not sad? Yeah, it's very sad. Because our Savior Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. And ye shall find rest for your souls. Rest. How many of God's people do you believe enjoy such rest? How many of God's people are frustrated and think God and other people are the problem? And all it takes is that we look at ourselves in the mirror of his word and realize God has been gracious. He is gracious, good, kind, merciful. You could go down all the characteristics, ladies and gentlemen. And my response to him is a rather ho-hum response rather than anything resembling passionate worship. And here's what God told Israel, the last thing from Moses, he said, if these people obey my voice, you can read Deuteronomy 28. If my people obey my voice, I'm going to overcome them with blessings and favor. If they don't, it's not going to be good. And the way he described it at the end was this, that you'll go into the land, but your feet will find no place of rest if I don't have your heart. And so their 400 years under kings was mostly wars and strife and contention, anything but peace. Jesus didn't come just to save our souls from hell. He did that, praise his wonderful name. But he said, I am come that you might have life. And that you might have it more abundantly. I wonder if the hardness of heart that prevents professing saved people from bowing before him. I can pray without bowing. Study the word. I worship in my way. Please study the word. I wonder if any of the frustration that so many believers sense and feel. Well, I'm doing this, and I'm doing that, and I'm not doing that, and I'm not doing that. That's bad. I don't know why I don't have more joy, more peace, more this, more that. I wonder if it has anything to do with the admonition that comes from the psalmist. Today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't do like they did. Give him the worship. I said, 
the worship that he deserves. Does it make a difference? Obeying his word always makes a difference. Father, you know who's in this room today. It's very possible that I'm standing before some who, in fact, have never trusted Jesus to be their Savior. They may feel about the matter of the forgiveness of sin and the salvation to eternal life. They may feel about that like some do about worship or some do about baptizing. Maybe have just made up their own definition of what it is or bought into a definition that's not remotely close to what the Bible says. Maybe there's somebody here today that needs to humble themselves and say, Oh God, I cannot say with assurance that my sins are forgiven. There were songs about that this morning. But I cannot, I cannot say with assurance that my sins are forgiven. My sins are under the blood that was shed to take the penalty for my sin. I, 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 can't, I, I can't say that I know that I'm saved. And maybe there are some even that would say, I know I'm not saved. I know I've never received anything like this. And maybe there are some that just need to humble themselves today and come and say, uh, this life is not going to be forever. I am going to face eternity. I'm going to give an account to God. I'd like to know that I'm saved. And what a wonderful day to be saved. What a wonderful opportunity they have to let somebody take the Bible and show them the words of eternal life and how they can know they have eternal life. It's entirely possible also, dear God, that in this assembly are some that would not even think about not being here when the services are held. Maybe some whose hearts are touched by the beautiful, wonderful singing we heard this morning from the choir and the specials. Maybe there are some that are in this assembly that are as saved as the Apostle Paul. But that peace and that rest and that joy, that joy, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. It's, it's not there. Could it be directly related to too much focus on self? Too little focus on God. Could it be that pride is in the way? Worship, biblical worship is certainly the opposite, the direct opposite of pridefulness. Could it be there are some that are missing out on what you would have for their life, the abundance that, of joy and, and peace that they could know but don't know because you're not the object of, your, of their worship as you should be. Work in our hearts. Save the unsaved. God, challenge and work in the hearts of your people. May our response to you be pleasing in your sight not repulsive in your sight. You swear in your wrath that they should not enter into your rest. Mm. 
So I pray your will be done this invitation time. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's stand together, shall we?